0: Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What?, comics podcast on the Savage Couric's website. Like a newly rebooted franchise, Graham McMillan and I are back, re-energized, with more than two full hours for episode 126, which of course, uh, by keeping the number, means that it's not really much like a reboot at all in this case. But you get what I mean, I hope. So, in this episode, Mr. McMillan and a very highly over-caffeinated me talk some more Arrested Development, The Fictional Man by Al Ewing, The Adventures of Supergirl by Faith Aaron Hicks, Green Lantern, Angel and Faith, Daredevil 26, In the Kitchen with Alain Passade and much, much more. Show notes for this episode are available over at savageproject.com. We always welcome your comments and questions at week one Podcast at gmail.com, and we thank you for your patience with our recent technical problems, and we hope you enjoy McMillan. It's on Jeff Lester. Technology
1: <laughs> is happening right now. That's right. Although the first thing we have to do
0: is um, minimize our screens, ladies and gentlemen.
1: Yes, let's minimize our screens, even though my little camera light is still on. This is great. So listeners, what happened last week, which you probably know, was that Skype basically said, fuck you, fight. Skype, in the end, just gave off. It <laughs> all, all together. Uh, and so Jeff Knight spent <laughs> Oh, well, just say an hour yes. trying out something else mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that ended up not working. So we're on solution three now. This <laughs> but this seems to work, right? Like, yeah. I mean, we won't know until you try to edit it, I guess. But do we think this one worked.
0: Yes, Graham, this works. I actually uh, checked things out in Audacity, and um, and we had a little sound file that sounded quite good. So. Uh, we'll see how things go as far as long term sounds and files. that might yeah, be a little exactly. more. Exactly.
1: It it's all going to be it's gonna be a fascinating, fascinating thing. Let's just let's just leave it that way.
0: Exactly. So uh fellow whatnots, uh, please a little bit of patience with us. I know that sometimes if the sound isn't driving you crazy, it's us talking about the sound that's driving you crazy. <laughs> so we'll do so our best. We're to trying to
1: get up. it all together this time. We're just trying to make this the most frustrating episode ever. And for that purpose, Jeff and I are going to talk about rest and development again. We all loved it so much. <laughs> we did that last week.
0: <laughs> It's so true, that was, um, that was, oh boy, was that not, uh...
1: It's so great that, like, you know, on this podcast we've talked with, like, I've said things like, uh, I'm not that bothered before Watchmen, no one bites an eyelid, we're both like, eh, we didn't really like Arrested Development, and people go apeshit.
0: Yeah, well, it's it sort of makes sense to me, because I think, honestly, um... <clears throat> Well, I mean, I think before Watchmen is this weird sort of legal blind spot, you know what I mean? But in terms of saying something's good or bad, it's very—it's a lot easier to have an opinion. And also, I do think I do really understand the number of people who feel that. Well, there's two things. I I think, and I'm and I and this is a, a bit problematic, like a, a bit patronizing. Is part of me is like, oh, the people have a really strong need to defend the fourth season of arrested development because it's super ambitious and there's a lot of there's a lot of good things that are end up in it and uh, but people seem really quick to sort of minimize the bad parts or the crap parts like you know generally they're like no this was great this is a triumph you know and I'm sort of like "Uh?" you know. also for me it was interesting Sean Witzke called me on saying like you know the like unlikable characters is like baby shoes crap Jeff you know is just like um
1: I, I, I loved I when I saw that on Twitter I loved it because for some reason my brain didn't parse it properly and I swear to god I thought he was referencing the for sale baby shoes never worn <laughs> I, just... I really was and I was like what the fuck I, I, I don't make that doesn't make sense to me he's saying that Jeff is talking about really short stories? Yes, like, exactly. I, I didn't understand. It was only when you responded I was like, oh, he means that. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I really, just, It did not make sense to me. Like, if that was a tweet to me, I'd have to respond with, I, I don't know what you're saying. I don't know what I'm you're really saying. I'm really sorry.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, I I, I don't know. It's, it's that weird thing of like, you know, I mean, bless him, he was like, ah, I'm not going to jump down your throat for having an opinion. but and, and I think most people are very much just like, hey, you know, I think you're wrong for thinking this. You know, it's no one's, like, really waving around the torches uh, ready to burn us. But the vitur- vituperativeness uh, with which people, some of the people responded was, I was like, guys, this really is an episode, you know, this is, like, 14 episodes that have way more Liza Minnelli you know, than it does. Like Will Arnett, you know what I mean? Like it's kind of it's one of those things that, um, for whatever reasons, I'm just like I understand that the season didn't just work out, but I'm fascinated to the extent to which everyone's like, "No, but it's a triumph." I mean, there's things that are, don't work, but I'm like, "Well, then." But but
1: in a really weird way, can you like? I don't see that. Like, I don't. I, I guess I don't accept that for risk development in part because, and I said this really badly on Twitter people jumped down my throat and they were entirely right to i called it a season of fan service which is is unfair but i guess Mm -hmm. what i mean is i think for it to work you have to go into it with such a level of goodwill that you're willing to put up with the really obtuse the really obtuse quality of the opening episodes yeah i think that it's terrible for not even a newcomer but somebody's just like "Eh, i saw a couple of episodes and it was funny Mm
2: -hmm. i think
1: the first three episodes are actively off-putting yeah, I think you have to have an right. incredible goodwill for the show, mm-hmm. um, and so I, I think that I, I, I don't, I have problems with the. It's really ambitious, and so it gets away with being off-putting in that level. Mm-hmm. But I, I also know in the past I've defended things on being ambitious and failing.
0: Yes, I, it...
1: I think, yeah.
0: Yeah, in fact, to, to jump in here, I I was I was kind of wondering because, of course, my whole thing about unlikable characters and people like kind of being like, so, like kind of like, so what? You know, I mean, it does help that. How do I put it? That a, season four of Arrested Development, weirdly enough, I'm just making the connection now. In some ways, reminds me of. Uh, Al Ewing's The Fictional Man, which we keep saying that we're going to talk about, which I think is... Oh,
1: which, yeah, which you had
0: lots of problems with, and I did not. Right, but the thing that's actually really funny is, is even though I say that I have lots of problems, and I feel they're worth mentioning, it's a lot easier for me to say that that uh, Al's The Fictional Man is kind of more of a triumph than season four of Arrested Development, even though it shares so many of the same problems... Because it's very much a new thing and its own thing, there is something that's very strange to me that the three seasons of Arrested Development and then the fourth, it's very hard because the fourth so clearly takes... Um, is, is so different from the first three, and yet there. I think it's not unfair for you, for me in this case, to sort of say, well, I have problems with it, compared to the first three seasons because i don't think that there you know there's expectations that get built in whereas the fictional man although in some cases i i have problems and in some cases for much of the same reasons i also find myself going oh yeah but no it's way more it it hits more than it misses and it has so many triumphs that i think are really remarkable whereas Arrested Development Season 4 actually does have a bunch of things that I think are really brilliant and and I'm really glad that I saw even as I think that I still have to characterize it as largely a failure, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, but to sort of parse that slightly is it that Arrested Development is a failure because it does not match your expectations of Arrested Development? Could you imagine coming to it completely cold?
0: Right. Well, see, that's the interesting thing about Arrested Development generally, is I always had trouble with the previous three seasons trying to introduce it to new people in a way, because you kind of had to go back to the beginning and watch it. Like, the its callback nature, like the way in which it got very brilliant, um, had so much to do with its ability to, to layer jokes over the course of, of seasons. Um, and so it's really hard for me to say, like, I think if I'd watched, walked into Arrested Development 4 completely cold, I think I, think I would have still had that similar um, mm, I, I belief that there was something that was missing, you know what I mean? It's just that with the first three seasons of Arrested Development, I think it was a little easier for me to go, oh yeah, I feel like there are things that are missing, and maybe it's this, and maybe it's that, and maybe it's that. You know what I mean? So maybe in a way it is expectations, I suppose, but
1: And is it also possible that you are not willing to cut it the slack that you're cutting it before? Because before you could be like, Oh, it's television Whereas I think part of the promise of Netflix and especially part of the promise of Arrested Development Netflix before it was released mm-hmm. was we're freed of these constraints. Mm. We can do what we want. Like that was that was a genuine problem for me.
0: Mm, interesting.
1: I, I said this last week. Like when the ad breaks came in, mm-hmm. part of me was like, "Why are you doing this? Like, why is it still constructed this way?" Right. Uh, see, I didn't... When, when when the overall story is not, if right. that makes sense.
0: Right. No, I do. I did not actually have that problem. I mean, to me, the biggest problem is is that the three seasons of Arrested Development were, by and large, really kind of absurdly close to Flawless for me. Like I said, there were two episodes that I didn't like in the entire three seasons of Arrested Development, and unfortunately I felt like the fourth season of Arrested Development had way more in common with those two seasons than I would have liked, you know? um, With those two episodes than I would have liked. So that's I think that really is more of a complication in, you know, is, is that how do I put it? Is, is that it was coming from a show that i thought was relatively flawless and i mean as much as i want to try and sit there and be like okay well the fourth season of arrested development it's okay if it's more of a mess because because hey it's arrested development but part of what i enjoyed about arrested development is is that it was so impressively neat you know what i mean like part of part of what i appreciated about it was its ability to to tie things off that there weren't a lot of things that felt clumsily just sort of thrown in there to to be in there you know um whereas in the fourth season of Arrested Development I'm like I don't like every problem that I have like a lot of the people who are big proponents are kind of already like giving it a pass because of this like oh no 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 because they weren't able to do this or they weren't able to do that and I'm not talking about like oh, I think the green screen quality was bad. It was just levels of things of like, you know, if I was a super nerd and set up a list of all the questions that I had and or, again, my frustrations of like, you know, Arista Development is a... um, you know, I think it's great that, like, the newscaster John Beard pops up so much in Arrested Development Season 4. I think that's pretty funny. I don't think that he should get more screen time in the season than Tony Hale is Buster Bluth. You know what I mean? And part of me is, like, people are, are like, yeah, yeah, but the schedules and the things and Netflix's budget that they only allowed him to have and all that, whatever it ended up being, it still, to me, ends up as part of a continuum of work. You know what I mean? Like, i it's still... it I don't think it's entirely unfair to compare the fourth season of Arrested Development to the first three seasons of Arrested Development because it's Arrested Development. You know what I mean?
1: Okay, okay, to expand this out slightly because mm-hmm. I feel like we really are just talking about Arrested Development. Yes, again. we are, Dammit, Graham, and that's
0: your fault. That's on you.
1: But is, does this not speak to a, uh, the sort of traditional you-can-never-go-back thing? Mm. I mean, o- obviously, it's going to be compared to what has come before, right. and and has to. Mm-hmm. it's it's the fourth season or or whatever. I mean, but again, is that not our expectation that, that's causing the problem? Is this not? I guess it's okay. I'm trying to think of a comic analog. Mm-hmm. Okay, when Chris Claremont went back to the X Men,
2: mm-hmm.
1: was the problem that? the stories in themselves were terrible or was the problem that the stories in themselves were not uh, were not as groundbreaking as we remembered his original x-men run being mm-hmm. well i i think that's sort and, of, and to, does yeah. it does that even matter right
0: right um that's interesting cuz i don't i i'm sort of like it it is sort of that weird like the analogy works but it's kind of different and you know i'm sort of like, a kind of, I kind of get where you're coming from with the Claremont analogy. I, I guess the thing that's well, funny about superhero characters that's hard is because in so many cases, like Claremont's a classic example, is A, you know, those are characters that he co-defined, I suppose, but didn't mm-hmm, necessarily mm-hmm. create, you know, mm-hmm. um, and so having him come back to them. Actually, you know, one of the comparisons that I thought was really great on our uh, on our comment thread, and I should jump over and see who made it. Oh, I think it was uh, The Beast Must Die was talking about how um, it's... Uh, a, the fourth season of Arrested Development is like Dark Knight 2, you know? And I thought that that was actually a kind of a really great comment in the sense of comparing it to it's the DK2 of TV it's like bold experimental entertainment that dare, dares to do something new it, but it's undeniably baggy and overstuffed but it's audacious and certain individual episodes stand as being brilliant you know and I so I think that that sort of to me that sort of works as a comparison because Miller it's not so much that Miller is coming back to Batman um, it's you know it's that he's coming back to dark knight sort of and is you know our expect we already have expectations of what a frank miller batman's going to be and he pretty much throws all those out the window um and i think that there's a i don't know i'm i feel like i'm more willing to cut slack for for miller on dark knight 2 in that regard than than her wit on arrested development 4 just because, again, I feel like at no point, with maybe the exception of the post-9/11 delay, I don't feel like there was a lot of um, positioning in the press in the media as how to receive the the fourth season of Arrested Development. You know, I mean, you 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 basically. I assume you didn't go back and watch the rest of the episodes after we talked. You're still like. <laughs> No, no, I'm still working my way through the West Wing, come on. <laughs> well, that's fine, that's fine, but I do want to say that, like, um, you know, somebody mentioned uh, Abbe's uh, take on Arrested Development, um, which he, you know... Is yeah, which I, I,
1: which I read and really appreciate, yeah.
0: And, I, and, and how do I put it? I felt like I both agreed with Abbe's take on it, but I also feel that more than half of what abbe posted there was a contextualizing of what didn't work and and why i suppose you know and i uh, or rather but, but
1: don't a, we do, don't we do that as fans isn't that mm-hmm. just part of what we do That when we like something we want to find a way to defend its faults mm-hmm. is, is that not because i mean i know i do that all the time sure you don't... know you're, you're like Grant Morrison's action comics—it's a mess, but it's a mess because—and I always try and make myself feel better about liking it, mm-hmm. but also sort of defend it against what are legitimate complaints and what are legitimate flaws. Right, and I think that's just part of liking something—that you you find a reason for the negative to be either explained away or to be a positive. Mm. I think that's just nature of fandom.
0: Well, it is, but uh, man, believe me, I'm a big fan of the first three seasons of Rested Development, and it was kind of hard to be like, yeah, this was great, except for most so much of it that didn't work, you know? Sure, but what I mean is the fans of the fourth season. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. I think see.
1: that's what it is. Like, it mm-hmm. works for them, and so they're like, okay, you know, I really like this. This was awesome. Mm-hmm. And these other things that people are saying, this might not, you know... I can kind of see that but here's why that is and i think it's just what we do Mm -hmm. you know one of the things that was really interesting for me as a viewer of the new doctor who season that just finished right was feeling myself shift from the explaining away what didn't work Mm -hmm. to eventually going actually it might just be a shitty season
0: right right
1: you know the, the point where it being
0: a will uh you know, actually, you dropped out just a second there. Do you mind repeating that?
1: Yeah, I was saying that it, it what was interesting for me is there was a point where I was aware that the show was burning away my goodwill
2: mm mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: where i I was like, you know it's not just you know it's not just a couple of episodes right there 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 are real flaws running through this entire thing that i I can't explain away anymore. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I can't be like well they're overworking or they're really playing off this thing or it's a meta joke or whatever it might just be shitty right right you exactly. know and I think i but I think that's I think when you see people saying you know Arrested development 4 is incredibly ambitious and and I it, I really enjoyed it because of that I, I think and but you know here's the thing here's me explaining why it's false I think that's just what you do when you love something um yes but but how do I put it? There's, there's an... But to, you, but here's, it's okay for you not to love it, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. Okay I, for them to love it. Sure, I feel you sure, like sure. you're kind of trying to win an argument that isn't even an argument.
0: Well, I'm not, it's not so much that I'm trying to win an argument, Graham. Although, who knows, maybe I'm being defensive, and I am, but I, but what I really think is, is to me, um, and I could be wrong, but at least for me, in terms of my emotional my growth as an ability to like understand and see how things work like as a quote unquote critic part of my growth came from exactly the time where i went from loving something and making excuses for it and and loving something and going you know what this isn't this isn't good enough you know what I mean? Like, there's kind of. Like, I. The, and that's the thing that I think is interesting. but, is, but I,
1: th- I think that's. Again, I think that's fine. Yes. Because I, I, I think that you're approaching it and they're approaching it from different angles. Uh,
0: which is. Well, see, my. I think the angle is. is I, that... I, I
1: feel like you're. I feel like you're trying to go. But my angle's right.
0: No, 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 no. First off, I'm trying to actually finish articulating any of my angles, Graham, which I'm <laughs> having a little bit of trouble with getting to the end of them uh, in some cases uh, here. But uh, no, what I mean is is that um, not so much that my thing is right, but rather that like where does the where does the difference cut in? In other words, you're saying. In other words, I get think what I'm what you're saying with say something like Doctor Who is is at a certain point enough goodwill gets burned off that you're like okay you know what this is this is a shitty season for example but what you're it seems to me what you're saying and which makes a lot of sense to me is is the fact that the things that bothered me didn't bother the other people and therefore you never quite the, the meter never quite rises to the point of you know your goodwill's never burned off enough to where you're suddenly opposed to something you know what I? You know, you see what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't think I'm saying it that much. As much as I don't think it bothered them as much as it bothered you.
0: Well, yes, that's what I'm saying. In other words, because if it did bother them as much, they, in theory, would get to that same point. You know what I mean? Like, and, and uh, there is an extent to which I think that it is necessary. How do I put this? That you, no matter how much you love something that you're still able to judge it. And I think most people who listen to us talk on the podcast and most of the people who write critically on the internet are generally in agreement of that, you know, that you just can't be like a blind lover of stuff and a blind defender of stuff. You kind of really have to pay attention to your internal sense of what works and what doesn't um, so that you can actually be, uh, you know, you know, uh, what do i what i want to say like a good consumer of art as opposed to just sort of a blind consumer of art you know what i mean so it seems to me that in order like the difference really like you said is that those people weren't bothered by some of these things as much as i did to get to the point where i was like okay this doesn't work for me you know what i mean or this isn't working is what i'm is is very much what i'm saying whereas those i think those other people despite loving you know love it and and whatever reason those errors don't really land as much for them to the, for them to get to the point otherwise i think they would get to the same point and be like you know what this is bad you know but one of the things i do find that's interesting is is that there are people who are kind of like yeah this is kind of like um you know one of the things that that did bum me out and admittedly you know uh Abbe is the master of hyperbole, but uh, let's see. Um, that maybe requires a patience of and spirit of adventure and forgiveness from an audience that may be incompatible with the short attention fuckery of social media. So I guess the thing that sort of bothers me is some of the people who are saying like Arrested Development 4 is brilliant... And, it, and if you can't see that you're engaging in short attention behavior, or as Ian Boothby put on our, our comments field, like this is why we can't have nice things, you know, it seems a little overly hyperbolic, don't you think? I... I do, uh, and
1: again, it comes back to my, I think it's people trying to make themselves feel better about liking something that people they respect don't like or are being hostile towards, mm-hmm. which again, for me, feels like something that you do when you're a van or, or when you're when you're engaging with something in, in that way. I don't know, I, 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 I don't disagree with you on anything. I guess I just have a different opinion, and I'm kind of confused as to why you care so much I guess
0: well like I said I'm a I'm a a huge fan of Arrested Development 4 Yeah, I mean I'm a huge fan of Arrested Development the fact that I didn't like season 4 is sort of frustrating but it's also kind of it's not so much that I care I just think that you know like I said although I'm sure in a way that I do it's that I think that it's very um, it seems to me that there's something essential in there to be uh Like, if you're saying, like, well, they're fans, and I'm like, no, but I'm a fan too. And you're like, no, but they're a fan of the fourth season, which means that they weren't as bothered by things. I feel like there's, um, I feel like maybe there's something important here about the nature of why we like the things we like, or at least how we like the things that we like. Sure, but is that
1: not such a personal thing?
0: But if it was totally personal, I don't think we'd really be able to communicate about it or 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 rather maybe it wouldn't be worth communicating about i feel i feel if there wasn't some sort of you know common ground like i i do like to think that we when we talk about the stuff that we like or why we don't like in putting forth reasons about it people can be like well sure but that you know like oh good point i agree with you or oh that that doesn't resonate with me or I thought you were full of shit until I heard that reason, and now I sort of agree with you. Like, I do believe that there's a there's an ability, like I, I guess I, at least for my own reasons of discussing about this stuff on the internet and you know in our podcast, I do have to believe the 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 idea that we can convince one another that our opinions can change, you know. Uh, and I sort of feel like you're kind of going, well, no, because the nature of being a fan is is that. If you like something, you're going to defend it, which means that you necessarily have to say, you know, um, you're the reason why we can't have nice things if you don't like this.
1: Whereas for me, that's part of the discussion you're talking about. That's part of the I didn't like this, well, I disagreed with you until this point discussion. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's the flip side of it, which is I agree with you in certain things, but I disagree with you in this and then it becomes a conversation about, like, for example, I feel that reading the comments, uh, not only on our podcast from last week, but on Arrested Development in general, mm-hmm. I have become, like, I have gone from, well, I think this is kind of shitty, I'm not into it, to I want to finish the season because I want to see what these other, if I see what these other people are seeing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so th- I feel there there is that element of uh, to and fro and, and push and shove and, and give and take. I, I don't mm-hmm. I I've I don't know. i do not know, I feel very I feel more malleable on this than I feel you do. Mm-hmm. I, I feel that you seem to think there's a line in the sand that because people disagree with you then it's there's some sort of like breakdown in the critical discussion, whereas this seems to be the way it works for me. Like I, I don't see I don't see anything different in this, I guess, from when we have talked about other things in the past. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that
1: and I'm very I didn't have the video on just there because then you would have seen me try to stifle a burp.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there was there was some strange moment there where I was like, What's going "Yeah," where it sounded like I was
1: inhaling it as also talking. Yeah, that's what it was. Ah, uh, I see. Um, no, but I I just I I I feel somewhat lost in this conversation because I do feel that what is happening is what always happens when we talk about anything, in that we have an opinion, Mm -hmm. or we have two opinions, we discuss it, and then people in comments or people on Twitter or whatever say, I have a different opinion. It seems to be exactly the same thing to me. And I feel that you're taking it further, Mm -hmm. and I'm I'm not entirely sure why you're taking it further, and I'm not entirely sure what is different and what makes any of this more of a line in the sand, in terms of the critical discussion. I, uh, I don't. I don't see why Ian Booth be saying, "This is why we can't have nice things." Is any different from when you know you and I complain that people didn't like Scott Pilgrim.
0: Well, which is a good comparison because he talks about Scott Pilgrim, but I I don't think how do I put it? Maybe I'm wrong. Is there's there's a way in which I think there's a certain like oh I'm bemoaning the fact that that you know more people don't like this thing because I'm on on the side of liking this thing um, there's a bemoaning it and there's a you know you're fucking it up for the rest of us sort of air that sort of makes me a little more uncomfortable that I don't feel like and maybe I'm wrong that I kind of feel like we don't really when we say something doesn't work for us uh, or when we say something does work for us like let's say that we talk like when we talk about the Scott Pilgrim movie it's like it's kind of a shame that it wasn't more popular But I don't think that, you know, we're – I don't feel like we're exceptionally very quick to jump into the realm of – well, and this is why we're all screwed. Although you know, I you know, it would be great. I I could very well have said exactly that same sort of thing. Now, well, I just guess to, just it. to I, keep in mind, know. hold on, hold on, wait, wait. I got to finish two things. One is, let's keep in mind that as I mentioned to you before we started talking, I'm violently overcaffeinated. So <laughs> this, I can actually hear that. Yeah. So it it probably sounds like I'm more hyper. Engaged or hyper defensive about this than I actually am, just because I am way more amped up on caffeine, you know, on on uh, mocha, Phil's coffee, mocha, methamphetamine, you know. But but there's also just, but I do think, how do I put it? Like seeing, my, like being on the other side of this. Part of me is kind of like, well, so don't doesn't it seem like this would be an interesting thing to talk about? The nature of which in in which people's critical faculties develop like because i kind of think that a, a critical faculty develops not so much when you look at something and you're like oh this is bad and this is good but actually somewhere in the middle where it's like this is good and now it's not good anymore you know and you're and i feel like i'm trying to talk about that in a general way and i feel like maybe i keep missing you on that because you keep saying like well i don't know why you're so married to this idea that everyone is opposed to you jeff you know and i'm like but but no i'm i'm not i just sound incredible i sound like that because i've you know am co- my veins are coursing with this evil drug <laughs> do you see what i'm saying
1: yes and this is why breaking bad wait what is never going to happen <laughs>
0: It's kind of a shame because oh wouldn't, yeah.
1: wouldn't that be hilarious in a terrible way
0: though? I think it would be great. I think the great thing is is I would love I would to get you to dress up like Walter White would be like the best. That would be like the absolute best. Like you mean ke- in
1: the, the like the 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 like the stereotypical orange suit type thing?
0: Yeah, orange suit. Get you a little goatee and then like the hat. You know,
1: I can't do the goatee, Jeff. We keep on talking about this. I have, I have the squint face.
0: Paste one on. Paste, one on, Paste one. I'm, t- I'm not. We're talking about a parody. I'm not talking about a lifestyle change. Do you think I'm going to actually come off much better as like a young guy going like, "Yo, Mister M, this shit is whack." You know, like it's not gonna do me any favors. You know, I do like, I do
1: like how I end up being voter White.
2: Yeah,
0: that's what that I'm you saying. Didn't
1: take that role for yourself, thanks. Yeah, I think. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what you're saying with that, but thank you.
0: Well, dude, if you totally want to be like Mr. Come on, yo! No, listen, yo! You gotta help me! Like, go for it. I'm done with that. I love that guy so much, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> that actor is just the best. Like, I, I gave up on, on Breaking Bad like two seasons in because I was, I was having some really weird problems with it. See, here's a great example. Breaking Bad i really i i understand why people say good things about breaking bad and i'm not very quick to jump in and say like oh it no it breaking bad is has is broken and bad you know because i feel like the things that i have a problem with i'm really aware are sort of my very strange biases um like things that I just don't like in storytelling, which I don't know if we we actually covered it. Oh, Aaron Paul, Jesse Pinkman, um, God, I I I had such the straight guy crush on Aaron Paul through the first two seasons of Breaking Bad, and like by like halfway through the second season, I'm just like that actor blew me away. I just thought he was fucking phenomenal. But it, and then he went on to play Weird Al Yankovic. <gasps> what? In Weird,
1: the Al Yankovic story. <laughs> who, who knew? Really? Who knew?
0: Mm. I have to say, not me. Not me at all. Miss, Mr.
1: Banjo in the Robot Chicken DC Comics special. Oh, great. He was in Veronica Mars. Of course he was in Veronica Mars. Of course he was Yeah.
0: What Mars. season was he in, of Veronica Mars? Uh,
1: It doesn't say, because I'm on Wikipedia.
0: Oh, not, not IMDb. Um,
1: uh, He was in, he was, in 2005, he was in Silence of the Lamb.
0: Right. Silence of the Lamb. As, Lam, as
1: Eddie LaRoche. <laughs> and, 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 no, no, that's the episode of Veronica Mars. Oh, Silence I see. Of the
0: oh, oh, oh. Eddie LaRoche. Hmm. Well, Graham, although I'm sure many people would love to hear us, like, go on <laughs> to talk about his entire storied film career... Complete with episodes we have not seen. Let's let's talk exactly. a little. Let's talk a little bit about Al Ewing's The Fictional Man, as we've promised to do for a long time. And as I stamp it over my although it's segment.
1: hilariously been a really 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 long time since I've read it now, so let's talk about it. And I'm going to try and remember it.
0: Okay, Al Ewing's The Fictional Man is the novel that uh, I've linked to on previous show notes over at SavageCritic.com, dot uh, com, and we'll probably link to again. Um... I I would describe The Fictional Man as a it's certainly hmm, it's a science fiction novel although in some ways I feel that it falls into that very funky realm of allegory I suppose in that it is, it concerns an alternate present in which uh, how do I put this M- mega corporations have are able to create fictional characters uh, in, bring them into real life and therefore use them as actors in shows and movies. Is that would you say that's a relatively accurate description yes. of the the so, so the matter?
1: the back yeah the back matter is cloning technology was created at some point mm-hmm. but it was outlawed to clone a living person. Yes. And so instead the technology is used to create living clones of fictional characters.
0: Yes. So, and against that setting, we have a writer in Hollywood who has written, has a sort of uh, successful, semi-successful novel franchise uh, who is trying to break into Hollywood. Um, and, uh, gosh, how, how do I put this? Um, he He basically, in order to do it, he ends up getting the assignment to... Um, recreate what? What's it called? Like the Fantastic World of Mister Doll, or what is What do you remember? What the actual movie is oh, called?
1: I, I don't, which is particularly annoying. But you're very close. If it's not something like that, mm-hmm. uh, the Delicious Mister Doll is what it's called. Yes,
0: the Delicious Mister Doll, which is um, a sort of uh, wonderful sixties James it's Bond, a Bond parody. parody. Yeah, it's very much yeah. like a, the the an equivalent of something like Our Man Flint meets uh, Diabolic in some ways.
1: Yeah, meets Barbarella, and I feel it's got a lot of the sex comedy,
0: quote-unquote. Yeah, the fantastic sex well. co- comedy trope, yeah, exactly. So, the, the writer, the protagonist writer, has incredibly fond memories of this show, of this movie, takes on the assignment of recreating it for... Uh, a Hollywood studio and finds himself sort of blocked in a very Barton Fink kind of way about the material. His, We see uh, the protagonist in, in the course of having his, um, I guess the rest of his life kind of, it's not so much that it falls apart, although it does as it goes on, but you sort of realize it's more about how much it doesn't really... Has never really come together in a way. You get to see the, his various failed relationships. His best friend is actually with a fictional character, which I think is one of the best parts of the book, of course, um, in that the the fictional character is actually a superhero that's been in the public domain, uh, the Black Terror. Uh, Bob, do you remember his name, Graham? I was <laughs> gonna say Bob Burton, but that's
1: actually the flaming character corrector, isn't it? It's Bob Barton or something similar to that. Yeah,
0: let's see. So Ralph Bob Gunner, Benton, sorry. Bob Benton. Yeah, exactly. So he his his he's his best friend slash only friend is one of the incarnations of the Holy Terror. Um and in the course of Trying to track, oh God, Graham. I have to say, like, I sure hope that Al Ewing. I'm gonna have to go put in like a previous warning, like <laughs> Al Ewing. Please do not listen to our description of your book because it really <laughs> is just. I'm doing a terrible what, job. We read it what, such a long I'm time finding,
1: ago. What I'm finding fascinating is that your description of the book is actually a million miles different from my description of the book would be.
0: Well, that could be because you're better describing things. Like I'm sort of like, okay, no, let's no, start it's, with backstory. No, because, and... because
1: you even you even mentioned delicious Mister Doll, which I don't think I even would have mentioned because mm-hmm. that's not because although that's the quote unquote plot of the book, mm-hmm. that's not what the book is about for me. The book for me is about the fact that uh, the main writer Niles Golan is is a, is a bigot against the fictional clones, mm-hmm. uh, but, but does not believe that, because he is as much a fictional creation as anything else, and in fact he is his, his best work because he has created a fiction about himself so real that he is not aware that it's fiction. And the book for me is about the unpicking of his reality and in the process him becoming more aware of the subjectiveness of reality and the subjectiveness of fiction versus truth. Throughout the whole thing, mm-hmm. I, the delicious Mister Doll as a is a, a MacGuffin for me to to sort of launch him onto that road.
0: Interesting, because it's a very com- complexly developed MacGuffin. Uh, so, first off, for the, uh, for people listening, I, I think Graham's entirely lucid description is the one that we should definitely stick with. And also, I think it's no surprise if that description of it seems very. Phil Dickian like I think one of the things that's really great about the fictional man is although it's absolutely positively 100% its own thing it very much reminds me in of a science, uh, science some of Phil Dick's best work in that it takes a very real very identifiable person and uses the science fiction conceits to I guess study to question the nature of that character's reality, you know, sort of in the sort of advanced psychological sense that we're used to dealing with in more quote unquote literary or mainstream novels, and also in the within the the more science fictional conceit of the of the world that's been created around the character. Does, does that sound and, fair? And,
1: and, Yeah, and I think that those two really cross over. When it's one of those things, I think when you and I were first talking about it when I had read it and you hadn't, mm-hmm. I said there was a specific thing that I found really interesting that I didn't want to spoil for you. Mm-hmm. And I kind of really want to spoil it now because you've read it, but everyone listening probably hasn't. Right. So I, I, I'm I, simultaneously like, and this thing happens, which is really important, but I can't tell you. Right. Um. But there is a, there is a character later on in the book who is mm-hmm. not someone we've mentioned so far, mm-hmm. who blurs the line between reality and fiction in such a way that is a masterstroke of Ewing as writer, mm-hmm. but also it's very important to Niles as a character and his understanding of what it means to be a real person and a fictional person. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're talking I really about appreciate.
0: the character that he meets in the bar, right? Yes, I am talking about the character.
1: Well done in identifying <laughs> that character without identifying that character. Yeah. Um, And one of my problems with the book Mm -hmm. is that that character is nowhere near there enough. Yeah. I wanted to see much more of that character, and I felt somewhat cheated Mm -hmm. when that character disappeared when they did and did not come back. Yeah. Uh, Because that character for me was so important to the the book, and so uh, simultaneously at odds to, but the key to, Niles' existence. Mm Mm-hmm. That I felt I did feel cheated that that character never returned.
0: Yeah, the that character does not pop up a lot in the book overall, and I I want to say the second or what ends up being the ultimate encounter between the main character Niles and um and this this character is I think was the part that I absolutely hands down adore well adored the most the part where I was like where it's like this book is at its most successful and at its most astonishing in that scene together and unfortunately the thing that that kind of drives me crazy is is that because so much of the rest of the fictional man sort of is a in many ways has that sort of novel of ideas like I sort of feel like uh, uh part of me is like no 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 no. this is like if i was the the editor on the book i would like jump up and down and be like okay this chapter is where you have something electrifying and there's other things like there's an incredibly clever murder mystery that happens throughout the fictional man that um without giving too much an, oh, uh, away um A number of fictional Sherlock Holmes get involved with trying to solve this murder, and you get to hear about it sort of on the sidelines, and it's absolutely exactly what you would expect from from Al Ewing, the guy who does these incredibly smart, knowing 2000 ADs stories, you know what I mean? Um, Yeah,
1: I, I feel we should explain for the listener who's not read this book, one of the things that we've not explained about the backstory is that not only do fictional characters become real through the cloning process yes but different incarnations of the same character become real yeah well so uh, if, a, yes. if a character is in a public domain or if a character is rebooted they would create another version of that person as opposed to just go we're still using person a right so, so you can have multiple sherlock holmes you can have multiple black terrors you can have right. multiple versions of any character who is basically available and has been rebooted.
0: Right. So I, I guess though the way to frame this in some ways is is that in in the world of the fictionals, there's only one James Bond. There's not five actors that's played James Bond, but there's just a fictional James Bond, you know, but who is walking around out in the world. But in something like Sherlock Holmes, that's in the public domain because each per each. Company can create their own Sherlock Holmes as long as it doesn't overlap with the the, the distinct uh, personality of the previous fictional. You can have multiple um, Sherlock Holmes in there, or multiple characters that have slipped into the the public domain. So the great thing is, is not only in this murder mystery, is does the real fictional Sherlock Holmes try and solve the case, but in fact there are other Sherlock Holmes that also get involved, that are you know completely identifiable to us because they parallel the various film Sherlock Holmes that have existed.
1: But what I liked about that was it seemed, for want of a better way of putting it, it seemed like a Hollywood way of using the idea of the fictionals. Mm-hmm that played off really well with the very non-Hollywood story of Niles. Mm. It felt like you were getting the, and here's one way to treat this idea, right. and here's this other way at the same time. And it felt like Ewing was playing with the, his playing with his high concept, mm-hmm. showing the various ways that it could be used, the various ways that it could be manipulated, while never really losing focus of the fact that the fictionals as a concept were there to illustrate Niles's inability to deal with his reality. I mean, One of the problems that I feel you had when we talked about it before was mm-hmm. you didn't believe in Niles as a character at the start of the book, yes. that
2: yeah.
1: it, was, it was laid on too thick. Mm-hmm. And I think that's wonderful, because that's, Niles becomes more real as Niles's illusions about himself become shattered, and that completely works for me. Mm -hmm. It works for me that Niles is a comedy character at the start. Mm -hmm. And it's really broad comedy. Right. And as the book goes on, he becomes more believable and more sympathetic because you're seeing his illusions about himself get stripped away.
0: Yeah, I... How do I put it? I, I sort of think... I think that's a great way of putting it, but I also feel that it was a an inefficient way of doing it. Like I can understand the difficulty in taking a complex character that is functioning under the fictions about themselves and stripping those away. But I feel like the very conceit of the fictional man, at least to me, almost requires that when you've got a, when you have a character where the point is, is that, they are their their version of their reality has to be challenged I think it's far too easy when on the first page they are so buffoonish they don't seem psychologically deep to me and I don't think that there's much of a groundwork to be made except in sort of the flattest way possible that that character ends up being um, stripped like that becomes more realistic as they go on because they're being stripped of their fiction. Uh, a real comparison to me, that, that that in a way is there's a the character of the brother in um, Jonathan Franzen's *The Corrections* is a character named Happy, and he is a character that is always happy and upbeat despite the fact that he is miserable all the time and. I think, although although I would have to go back and read it, as I recall, one of the things that really struck me about the character, the reason why I ended up thinking the Corrections was actually such a, a good book, uh, despite Franzen's complete and utter annoyingness in so many ways, is the fact that he so captured how a character, in denial about themselves, both functions in the world and appears and kind of um, be, gets revealed to you. And on the one hand, he's a little bit cartoony, buffoonish in the in sort of the similar way that Niles is in the fictional man, but not nearly to the same degree, I think. To me, unfortunately, um, Niles in the fictional man is—it's not just that he's a cartoon; he's just not a very—he's not a very convincing, well-developed cartoon. You know what I mean? He's very oh, I, I,
1: I, I completely disagree. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think. I, I, as soon as the book opens, mm-hmm. you have you're faced with his incredibly cartoonish vision of himself. Yes. Which is already at odds with the reality as is presented in the book.
0: Yes. No, I agree. But... I, I,
1: I, I think I, I But I that's think my problem. Immediately, uh, but I, I but for me the prob that's not a problem of the book, that's a problem of Niles. The Niles is a very cartoony version of himself that is in no way supported by his reality immediately that makes him a more interesting character to me if the book started with him seeing himself in this cartoony way and there was nothing contradicting that Mm -hmm. then then i'd have a problem that i wouldn't be interested in him as a in learning more about him as a character the way that the book opens i think immediately contradicts that and gives me reason
0: to read on oh agreed but my problem i agree with that part my problem is is that his cartoon of himself is is not it's kind of it's not a convincing cartoon like that's his the cartoon of the writer as a as a sort of well put together mono maniacal self-possessed individual um is it's so it's so mad magazine ish in the way that Niall sees himself there's no there's no way that we're fooled in the first three seconds and therefore there it seems very unrealistic that he could be fooled by it himself unless he's like a 13 year old or a 14 year old like the lies that people tell themselves at 30 or 35 are different from the lies they tell themselves at 20 or 25 or 13 or 15 the rest of Niles, the 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 realm in which he inhabits, the things in which he's done and mistreated people and then gone on to defend himself, the shell is that of a very realistic person. But Niles, it's not that Niles is, Niles is a, a car, you know, sees himself as a cartoon. It's that it's the, it's like the wrong kind of cartoon. You know what I mean? It's a, it's like an Elmer Fudd cartoon, you know, a, a Chuck Jones Elmer Fudd cartoon, as opposed to like an Eddie Campbell Alec cartoon, you know.
1: I yeah, I see what you're saying, and I just disagree. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we have I, it. I, I I no, but really, I do. I just I, I, I feel like I know people who see themselves like this. I I I I do not see it as an unrealistic cartoon at all. I I I completely believe that someone could convince themselves that are like that. Um, and when we when we get off recording, I'll name names, because you know them too, Jeff.
0: <laughs> I fully expect you to go, and that person is you! And, <laughs> exactly. Well, right, exactly. And I think there's a lot of ways in which I, you know, for myself, I'm like, okay, you know, like, my, my wanting Niles to be sort of closer to me I felt like there was too much distance there I really felt like I'm like I'm never going to be able to mistake myself for this guy and alternately I feel like I sort of you know in in that weird wackity do transference thing that readers do part of me is like you know what it strikes me that Al Ewing is way too worried about being mistaken as that guy you know and so there's like way too many levels of flatness being thrown onto that character also at some point I mean we'll have other topics that you and I should talk about, but I don't think that, uh, you know, as as far as a MacGuffin goes, the fact that um, The Fantastic World of Mr. Doll really does have a Russian nesting doll structure of four, three or four different incarnations, each one of which is built out in breathtaking detail. You know, like, if that's just a MacGuffin, do you think does Does that mean to you that that what Ewing was doing was just a bunch of sort of show stopping craftsmanship?
1: uh not exactly, but I also think that it's entirely in service of the the larger theme and entirely parallels uh Niles's idea of himself mm-hmm. i I don't think that it's a standalone thing for 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 me for it to be more of a central plot. It would have to exist. It would have to be able to exist aside from Niles's journey, mm-hmm. and the fact that it it just maps onto it so directly
2: mm-hmm.
1: feels. Uh, I I maybe MacGuffin is the wrong term, but I don't think it's one. I don't think it's the central plot at all. Mm-hmm. I think it is a supporting thing for what Niles is going through.
0: Well, yeah, I I think that the way in which it's you know, the very first incarnation of the story is something that is a broad cartoon, sort of the way that we see, you know, of a, a a broad racist sexist cartoon, sort of the way in which Niles himself is at the beginning. And then at the end of things, when it's done in this just absolutely brilliant pastiche of for me it reads almost like a Richard Matheson slash Charles Beaumont short story, but I was you know there might be a more specific and distinct model that it's worked off of, but a very breathtaking sort of story of psychological alienation um you know i I assume that it sort of meant in that case that the way in which the way in which Niles uncovers his various incarnations of the Mr doll story parallel the way in which we're supposed to see the stripping of Niles himself from a cartoonish character at the beginning to a character that is um, able to sort of accept and define their own aloneness, I suppose.
1: But but it's also a story that progressively gets darker Mm -hmm. and offers misdirection as to what it's about. And it's also a story that is consistently rejected by Niles. Yes. So he reads it and it's offering commentary on his situation and on his journey, mm-hmm. but he can never embrace it. Right. He always tries to find an out, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because that's what that's what he does. Like even when he's the buffoonish cartoon at the start. Well, he especially imagines... when I think is the. But he, to... he always imagines himself as, uh, as the. Better man as the the person in control of the situation, mm-hmm. but unrealistically above everything else. Right. He 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 is unable to take responsibility, mm-hmm. and because of that, he's unable to understand responsibility.
2: hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And so uh, the more he finds the the darker that the, the Mister Doll story gets, and it gets pretty fucking dark. Yes the more he just is just like no <laughs> right there has to be something else this mm-hmm. this does not match with my version of reality therefore i reject it <laughs> there's something else going on here mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i don't know i i feel that i mean i feel that it's technically accomplished and a really interesting c story i guess mm-hmm. but it's a c story for me it's not the air to be story mm
0: mm-hmm. mhm I think my problem my problem about it is despite the technical brilliance of it, it seems so richly developed that it's it draws attention to itself as more than just sort of a general motif. I, it seems to me the more detailed that gets a uh, uh, lay motif gets, sort of the more directly you're supposed to be able to map it onto the situation that it's corresponding to, and the harder it gets to actually do that. And that may just be my um, sort of simplistic way in which I look at how motifs and lay motifs and themes actually work. I'm, I'm a pretty pretty heavy-handed, but I also feel that like for the amount of pages and detail and attention that it draws to itself, um, there's ways in which uh, it's, you know, um, there's a point where Niles compares himself to Thomas Pynchon uh, early on in, in the book, which I thought was a, a great little moment because in so many ways the fictional man is also a very Pinchonian sort of novel in that it refuses to allow sort of the super easy sense of closure that you get in other books. Um, Pynchon has a tendency very much to leave the... Resolution of a character's emotional journey um, incomplete, Uh, and I think that that while also developing, you know, elaborate detail. You know, the Crying of Lot Forty Nine, the amount of detail becomes absolutely sort of eye stingingly baroque and detailed. Um, You know, at least for me, my the difference between the fictional man and the Crying of Lot Forty Nine. As, as they work at those factors, is the, is the point is that the crime of lot 49 is in fact a critique of, not a critique of, but a dissembly of the idea of mapping, oh, well, maybe that's it. Maybe maybe Ewing himself is making a point that you cannot easily map the fiction of Mr. Dahl easily onto the reality of Niles. You know, and that in that every time you do so, you end up sort of creating You know, you end up you end up um, buying into your own fiction about yourself and and turning yourself into that that more cartoon state, cartoonish state. I which
1: guess. which is what Niles does throughout the book.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: Niles is constantly writing his story and also constantly. I, I the thing I I I'm not sure I lost track of. But the thing that that puzzled me more as the book went on
2: mm-hmm.
1: was it, he obviously starts off with uh, by utterly misunderstanding his life mm-hmm. and who he is. Yes. And I, what I was curious about as the book went on is whether he just continues to misunderstand or whether he is consciously rejecting. Right. Himself. Right. Um... Because things happen. Things happen where you in order to make the choices and decisions and have the self-perception that he does yes you're either an idiot or you're actively misunderstanding or or not paying attention
0: right and i think i think the idea is that you're supposed to believe well you're supposed to believe i think that niles is actively rejecting but i think one of the things that's hard for me is because he's such a flat two-dimensional boob at the beginning of the book uh, it it's easier to see it as the former and I think and I just feel like that that then sort of ends up with the whole thing sort of stumbling into the quagmire of haha dumb people are dumb you know and it, which clearly I don't think is supposed to be the point you know because I don't think that that ends up being I think most of us agree that usually ends up being a, a particularly flat and easy point to make in a in a piece of fiction. But um, but the way that it's set up, that's kind of the way that it comes out, and I'm sort of like, I don't feel I feel that that does it. That's part of the main disservice that
1: both comes to itself. I'm curious now. Do you do you think
0: that Niles is dumb? Uh, I think Niles is presented as dumb, yes, and be, especially at the beginning because the nature of his of his rewrites of what's happening around him are so absurdly flat. They're so absurdly contradictory about in, in relation to what happens. You know, I think there's something to it about it. It seems very important. The fact that the fact that Niles is such a bad writer ends up really limiting the, the success of the book for me because it's because it's, it's the, the good writers are the ones that are really fucking fool themselves. You know? The bad writers certainly do as well, but it, it, it almost has less of a way in which that connects to the world for us. You know? He's, he, Niles is absurdly easy to reject at the beginning, and I feel that that makes it far too easy to throw the rest of his quest into like, oh, well... That certainly was, you know, uh, uh, a quest of awakening for a very shallow person, you know, as opposed to it being like something that that connects to should connect to all of us. Hmm. You know, but I I see. Whereas it seems to me like you jump very quickly into that idea of like all be, because we all fictionalize our lives all the time it's very easy to put ourselves in Niles's uh, shoes right?
1: Yeah I I I, yes for yes to that but also I don't see Niles as dumb at any point in the story I see him as delusional Mm -hmm. and I see that if anything he's overthinking everything Mm -hmm. and that feeds into his delusion Mm. and so it's just interesting to me when you said dumb people are dumb because I never took that as the as An implication Mm -hmm. at all, Mm -hmm. because I never read Niles' dumb.
0: Okay, I. I, It's funny because you don't think that, for example, the books that he writes and he's succeeded by are clearly they're terrible. Yes, but But I don't think that makes him dumb. That just makes him a bad writer. Mm,
2: Okay.
1: I, I said I also really I found the Kurt power joke hilarious. Mm-hmm. And I, the, the, all the different titles that went through, I found that ridiculously entertaining. But at no point did I think it made him dumb. Interesting.
0: Yeah i i found I found that those some of those were so clearly dumb. <laughs> like, and some of them are actually dumb. Like, the, again, it's that thing where I feel that it's the Ewing's skills as a satirist it screwed up his um, his goals as a writer because I feel that a lot of those Kurt Power books are so brilliantly titled and brilliantly skewer the um, those the, the genres of those books. But I also find them,, um, you know, there's there's a point where Kurt Power starts off as a lawyer but stops being a lawyer because you know the the law requires too much research you know and I feel that that's sort of a you know it's 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 kind of a that that is definitely a critique of Niles as being the sort of guy who's either lazy enough that he doesn't want to do his research or he's dumb enough to, to where the research is really difficult for him and sure but why do you default to dumb in that case because for me it was lazy
1: it was it, especially that you know he's done what 19 novels 19 right. Carpenter novels by the end it he came across to me as basically lazy and greedy
0: lazy greedy dumb i mean he's an impressive like <laughs> daffy duck of a character in that sense but i just don't you know but but i do think that, that unfortunately makes him harder it, i like i said i feel like that cuts against the ultimate effectiveness of the book you know I mean, it's one thing where it's a very basic kind of duck amuck messing with reality kind of thing. And it's and it's another thing where you're, you're the goal is kind of a, a psychological insight into, you know, uh, how we how we choose to misapprehend our reality. You know, so mm-hmm. so anyway, I mean, I, I think I think we'll end up chasing, ch- you know, making this same curly cue of you going left and me going right about the book i think it's i think it's a tremendous read i really do recommend after hearing me both misdescribe it and continue to dislike it uh, it's going to <laughs> hopefully sound inc- you know it i hope it doesn't sound too disingenuous to for me to say that i honestly think people should read it because you know the parts that are are brilliant are brilliant and also i feel that it is a um you know, the the more stuff that I see by Al Ewing, the more stuff is kind of the, like, I really do have this feeling of like, holy shit, I do not believe that Al Ewing's like topped out on his potential yet, and I think that that's a stunning thing to see, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also have to say that after reading, looking at the descriptions of. His, the previous books in the series, you know, his previous pulpy novels that you've mentioned, I was like, Jesus mm-hmm. Christ, I have to get right on these. These sound amazing to
1: me. Oh, they, they sound so you mm-hmm. to me. I remember reading, I can't even remember which one it was, but one of them I was like, oh God, that's Jeff's novel.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, exactly. That's right
1: there. book yeah. I write there. For me, I think that The Fictional Man is uh, really ambitious mm-hmm. and for the most part successful. And even when it's not successful... Again, it fails in an interesting way
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: uh and so yeah i i I highly recommend it. I get the feeling that I liked it a lot more than you,
0: yeah, I think so uh, right
1: but i would I would entirely uh double down in your recommendation that people mm-hmm. read it mm-hmm. It's available on Kindle for people who are uh, curious yes, yeah and, yeah, and i should I it, should like mention or yeah. Kindle app yeah yeah
0: you can you can grab it super super quickly, I feel like it's actually priced um pretty affordably uh i i ended up it's pretty funny i ended up getting a review copy and then i turned around and thought that it was worth supporting so i actually purchased a copy kindle copy as well so
1: i am going to check how much it is right now on amazon yeah i want to it say... is uh 629 mm-hmm. for kindle or 899 for paperback
0: yeah and it is definitely i think a very strong $6.29 book yeah people buy it, yes. Thumbs aloft. <laughs> Indeed, thumbs aloft. Although with that sort of strange skewing thing that Jeff's thumb Th- seems thumbs, to do Thumbs so aloft But Jeff, wait.
1: wait. Anyway, so take that under advisement.
0: Actually, you have to repeat yourself because that cut out for some reason.
1: Oh, that's hilarious! I was I was giving you shit. <laughs> I love that it cut out when I was giving shit. I said thumbs aloft, but Jeff does not seem to like anything today. <laughs> that that's what it cut out with I kind of love that um, should we hang up and try again should we keep going because it doesn't seem to be fucking up for me
0: no or for me either it seems very um, It seems. oh very let's fun. keep going let's yeah. try and do it Jeff yeah let's go for it let's, let's see go. what happens hey
1: Jeff yes here's a question an, mm-hmm. a, an hour and fifty minutes into this podcast have you read any comics lately
0: I have, Graham. I have. Uh, let me see. There's a few things that I sort of wanted to talk about. Uh, I should throw in two. Let Let me first, by starting, start talking about the two books that I read that I can wholeheartedly talk about my enthusiasm for, so it just doesn't sound like I'm a, a pisser and a moaner, even though, let's face it, I am. Uh, that is The Adventures of Superhero Girl by Faith Erin Hicks. Um, I picked up the, the little first volume through the library that dark horse put out and it was such a relief to read because for me in so many ways um it was great to read something that i that i could kind of go oh yeah i absolutely like this unreservedly you know by faith heron hicks like trouble with boys was really problematic for me because there was so much that i liked and again sort of a la jeff being pissy there were things that i thought were problematic or worked against it but The Adventures of Superhero Girl, by being a collection of, I'm assuming, strips that Faith Aaron Hicks did online, is just exactly and entirely that, and ends up being, for me, one of the better superhero books that I've read in, um, I don't know, some time. I just really unreservedly enjoyed it. Have you read it, Graham?
1: I have not, and um, Rachel Edison, who edited it and is now working with me on Wired, mm-hmm. gives me shit about this all the time, <laughs> because she knows I really like Faith's work, mm-hmm. and she's like, you'll love it, you'll love it, you should just read it, you'll love it, you should just read it. It's a, a common complaint of Rachel's that I've not read this book. I will one day, mm-hmm. I just have not yet.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, although I, I'm I'm tempted to like go back and berate you some more, Graham, uh, about that choice. Please do, I... f- f- feel free. Right, I, I I actually think that there's there's you know there's a lot of stuff out there. It's hard to get to. When you get to it, you will enjoy it. For people who are wondering what exactly it is about, uh, Superhero Girl is a modern superhero. Uh, uh, you know, a young woman who's like you get senses like I don't know maybe somewhere between seventeen and twenty two who has a roommate and an apartment and a commitment to fighting crime that in some cases, you know, she has to deal with the varying problems of fighting crime that that really sort of sync up with... It's it's very much to me like, here's a superhero comic that, almost in its way, and which is great because I don't think that she was really thinking kind of like, how would I do Spider-Man now in the 21st century but it to me it's very much spider-man in the 21st century in that it, it, with the exception of yeah for the 21st century in that it's someone it's like i'm a superhero because this is what i want to do um because i want to do it i'm having a difficult time making the rent now that my superhero grant has run out um and many other brilliant things from like You know, sort of that classic way that, like, Spider-Man would, like, come back to his apartment and be like, oh, shoot, I forgot to, you know, put film in the camera. Like, you know, just little quick, these are all single-page strips. Um, But, like, superhero girl, like, goes out and fights lots of crime, comes back, and because she's forgotten to put on sunscreen, she has, like, this huge set of white marks where her domino mask goes and her roommate, like, <laughs> mocks her and is like, your your new superhero name is Raccoon Girl. And, you know, stuff like that that's just really absolutely charming. Single page strips, her attempts to find her, an arch nemesis, her frustrations with other members of her family, it's just, it's all done. It's remarkably charming and light, but it also feels to me like a real superhero comic. You know, it's just, it's just a real superhero comic that, um, that I would want to read all the time so uh so you should get on that Graham throw that throw that on I, your I will rest. I will mm-hmm. the, I, uh,
1: well I should know I'm a big fan of faith so yeah. yes
0: exactly so and and for me this was this great moment of like whew, finally somebody like something that she's doing that I like as much as I just like you know her like she always had this she always had the skills she always had the chops it was just you know the problem with I had a lot of problems with friends with boys um, that were just sort of related to execution and, and growth and stuff like that. And The Adventures of Superhero Girl actually, you know, evades all that. It's, it's a great piece of work. A book that maybe I isn't quite as strong, actually, as The Adventures of Superhero Hero Girl, but I'm tr- I'm enjoying reading tremendously, is In the Kitchen with Alain Passard, which is uh, written and illustrated by Christophe Blaine. Uh, was originally published in France, and Chronicle Books uh, has put out a a hard copy translation of it. By hmm, who did the translation? Elizabeth Bell does the translation. Uh, for, I get the gist, although I didn't bother to read the inside of the book. That this was something that um, Blaine created, perhaps to run in like newspapers. It's they're usually short two page strips sometimes occasionally four pages that are a uh, reportage of um covering Alain Passard whose three restaurant uh three star restaurant in Paris uh La Perche is a um is, it's an award winning restaurant so the cartoonist goes you get to see the, the chef, but you also get to see how he cooks and crafts things. And because it's kind of an awesome book, it also includes the recipes of what he's cooking. So the sections are frequently broken, into, broken down into food. So you might see a something called uh, hot cold eggs with maple syrup, uh, and you'll have the recipe, and then you'll have like a one-page or two-page strip that shows how it's prepared so it's kind of more it's almost like a graphic novel cookbook um, and it's a shame I haven't gotten my hands on Lucy Nisley's Relish so I haven't been able to compare and see, compare and contrast because I think that would be sort of an analogous book to to compare it to but in terms of a I'm such a sucker for like cooking and comics strike me as such a perfect fit in so many ways that I just all I want to do is read comics about cooking all the time as you know I'm it's something (laughs) that I'm just kind of obsessed with so uh and if you if people are of a similar bent I think they'll enjoy the book a lot if you're not there's not much you know there's as you can imagine there's no narrative flow there the portrait of Passard himself that emerges is not any deeper than you would get from, say, a a halfway decent magazine profile. You know, it's all pretty Mm. light and disposable. Um, It's just very, very well done for what it is, you know, including Blaine's cartooning, which is kind of fantastic in its ability to create detail in very few pencil strokes, but also sort of... um, that can also be underwhelming for people who are not into I suppose that form of cartooning if you know what I'm saying.
1: Yeah no totally. I I've, I saw this I want to say I wrote about this for uh, Onomatopoeia mm-hmm. whenever it was solicited and was totally this is great I should search this out and then entirely forgot about it until you're talking about it at which point I've gotten very jealous of you reading it. <laughs> uh, I, I did think it looks really good. Like you I really want to read uh Lucy Nisley's book as well, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I'm not sure I am the. Wow, comics and foods—that seems like a great combination. Mm-hmm. Person that you are, but definitely those two books seemed particularly interesting to me. So yes, I am. I am jealous, and so hopefully I will not only track that one down, but also the Lucy Nisley one by the time you read it, and we can talk about them.
0: Right. Yeah, that sounds great. I would say not that it really matters because it's not like I'm I'm arguing the case, but I guess the reason why they seem naturals to me is is that. You know, cookbooks and cooking, you know, things that teach you how to cook by nature break things down into steps. And so, therefore, the sequential nature of comics suit it very well. Um, and mm-hmm. also, the way in which um, comics have an ability to focus the details that it has, that, that you're supposed to pay attention to things, I suppose, or the degree to which things are. Um, should be focused on can be reflected in the art very easily and that is actually something that I think really suits cooking very well because cooking sometimes will have like 20 steps to it But and you know this because you actually like bake bread for example like there's steps 1 through 5 but like steps 1, 3, and 5 are way way more important than steps 2 or 4 like you need all of them but you know, there's some steps that are more crucial than others. And in comic storytelling, you can place the emphasis. There's so many ways to place emphasis on the steps and their importance, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I think they're they're quite good. And then to contrast that, like, I should... Let's mention... Superior Spider-Man number ten and Daredevil number twenty-six, which I uh, was able to read thanks to the support of whatnots sharing their digital codes. Have you read Daredevil twenty-six?
1: I I have not. I am horrifically behind on Daredevil. I've not even read Daredevil number twenty-five.
0: Right. Well, uh, somebody actually passed along Daredevil twenty-five for me, but because it didn't have a digital code, it was very much like, oh, hey, here's a down, you know, sort of like here's a here's a Samus. copy, and I kind of thought it might i'm like i had that weird moment of like is it technically cheating to read a pirated comic if somebody sends it to me as opposed to asking for it ultimately i decided to split the difference i didn't read that but i just jumped right in on 26 holy cow it is a it is a really really well done comic man that is like wade and Samney are just doing some astonishing stuff on there um
1: you you've been keeping up with the title up until now though haven't you? No, no, or have no. you not? Did you no. drop out and back? Yeah, because I I've been keeping up with it. Like I said, I'm behind, but I'm you know I still have them. I just haven't read them. Right. Uh. And yeah. They they've been on fire for a while.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Which everyone has said, and I, I it's not like I disbelieve them. But for those people who are curious as to my take on it, holy cow! Like that's some um, amazing like the the level of. Wade and Samney craft in issue 26 is kind of this may run into the realm of of crazy hyperbole but I think it's relatively accurate is it reminds me a lot of what would have happened if Miller and Mazzicelli had stayed on Daredevil after the Born Again storyline and sort of kept trying to do a Daredevil comic as opposed to jumping over and reinventing Batman for Batman year one you know what I mean? Mm Mm-hmm. It's just astonishingly, like, it just, it looks great, it reads great, whether or not it's really trying to do anything more than be an exceptionally great superhero book is is dubious, but it doesn't need to be. It is an exceptionally great superhero book. Um, and I actually feel somewhat the same about Superior Spider-Man number 10, which I read and... Enjoyed so much that people had sent me digital copies of Superior Spider-Man. Pretty much, I have something really close to all the issues, and had read like maybe the first three and sort of like trailed off. I went back and read at least from issue five on up through ten, and really liked what Slot is Slot and is uh, the the artist. Is it Ryan Stegman? Am I getting that name wrong? Yeah, it's, it's Ryan Stegman. Yeah, Stegman's work, which I was really underwhelmed with. Uh, storytelling wise for that first issue of superior um is really a, a thing of delight by the time you get to superior spider-man number 10 it's got a, it's it's just got a really good um thing to it and you know it's got a really it's 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 really nicely delineated and feels doesn't feel rushed or sketched like he's like really in his own um yeah, that, those things, those two books are really good signs of of stuff that Marvel's doing right, I suppose, as opposed to stuff like um, reading Uncanny Avengers number 8 or something, which I read and was just like, holy god, is that a fucking quagmire, you know? Really? It's funny because the two Marvel
1: books I've read this week are, are very much examples of Marvel doing things wrong.
0: Oh, really? Like what?
1: Uh, I read Age of Ultron number nine. (gasps) Oh, Graham, you're Um, always
0: jumping in and off. I've read that too. This
1: is because yesterday I was working and uh, David Uzumeri was on Twitter. And he was like, wow, Age of Ultron's really shaping up. (laughs) No, but he he says something like, I say this every issue. It feels like it's really shaping up and then it doesn't come to anything. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay. I'm wondering what they're going to do for the last twist, right? Because so far it has been an, a stunningly fragmented series. Yeah, I wonder how they're going to try and stick the landing, right? And it was, and he said it was really coming together, and I was like, okay, it was. Mary's a smart guy. Mm-hmm. If he's saying it's coming together, there's got to be something there. No, 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 <laughs> no, no. There's not. That was three ninety nine <laughs> wasted. Yeah. Let yeah. me tell you. Yeah. Um. And then I read Avengers Arena issue ten. Uh, because I wanted to read the the death of, of Nico. Mm-hmm. And that was... That's a, I had, again, on Twitter, I had a, a long conversation today with Al Kennedy from House Astonish. I, I am not following Avengers Arena mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I've read issue 1, I've read issue 10, and both issues are exceptionally nasty little comics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Really weirdly... Um, I don't know. There's something really leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Mm-hmm. There's there's something gleeful about the violence and about the death. I guess mm-hmm. in both issues, uh, that that's not just. It's like it's gratuitous, but isn't that great? <laughs> Which really does not make me want to read any other issue.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And and yeah, Al's like you know it's it's normally not like that. He's like it's it's a character based book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I I. I cannot even believe that based upon the two issues I've read. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things where you have a, a sample, you sample an issue, and the issue seems to be so at odds with what everyone else says about the book, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that you're just like, I can't even imagine this being a character based book. Right. I cannot imagine this being a book that does not exist purely to appeal to the worst uh, parts of the genre and the worst
0: cliches of the genre. Right, The the more torture pornier aspects of Of superhero comics, yeah. I mean,
1: so the the plot of Avengers, reading number ten, and spoilers, but I don't think any of you really care because I don't think any of you are reading it. um, Is Nico of the Runaways is murdered by a essentially mind-controlled version of Chase from the Runaways. Mm. Hooray! Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But before that, she does get her hands cut off and her (laughs) legs broken.
0: That's amazing. It's it seems very. God, was it the Revenge of Red Arrow? Or, you know, it's like at least he's n- nobody's like actually like using a cat. As nobody's a holding, yeah,
1: nobody's yeah. holding a dead cat and being like, it's my baby. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, um, I, it, it, but it is just like it's it goes beyond gratuitous and mm-hmm. then the funny thing is so I was like this this comic's leaving a really nice taste in my mouth but the digital version has the letters page in it which surprised me I didn't know that that happened mm-hmm. um, although now that I think about it it does every month for Avengers Assemble <laughs> yeah yeah exactly <laughs> for Young Avengers I, yeah for some reason and anyway so I'm reading it um, and Dennis Hopeless the writer is answering the, the letters and he mm-hmm. makes a joke about killing off Nico and Chase from The Runaways. And I was just like, oh, fuck you. Mm -hmm. Fuck Mm -hmm. you for the weird glee you have for killing these fan favorite characters.
0: Now, just out of curiosity, how does that seem different to you? Does it seem. Because, I mean, you seem to have. We didn't get a chance to talk about this because of last. Oh, oh, the Catwoman podcast. Exactly. I see. My
1: thing with Catwoman was it's clearly. It's completely gratuitous, yes. It's tacky, but at no point, I think, was anyone supposed to believe the Catwoman was dead. Mm-hmm. And I think in Justice League issue 4, I don't know if you read Justice League of America issue 4, mm-hmm. there's even a tell in the story that it's not Catwoman. Mm, okay. Um, and so, like, it's a different type of gratuitous, I guess. Mm-hmm. When it's pretty, when the story's pretty much telling you, this isn't what it seems.
0: Right. Right.
1: Than when it's like I mean literally the last page of Avengers Arena is Nico lying on the ground and her little power bar is at zero, mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: and it's just something I don't know it's just something weirdly commodifying the death and I don't know it was it left a really weird taste in my mouth in a way that Catwoman did the Catwoman scene did because it was just cheap mm-hmm. if that makes sense like it was like hey. Look what we're doing. We're being shocking. Right. But at no point were they like she's actually dead. Like at no point were are like, look, we've really killed her, you guys. Right. Like I almost feel that people who were like, You've killed Catwoman, were dumb. Right. She has a fucking monthly comic coming out. Right. And like even even the DC Comics blog post made a really obvious like attempt not to say dead.
0: Right. Right.
1: They're like, they've lost a member. Maybe she's fallen down the sofa. Who but, knows?
0: But... <laughs> But I, and I th- I suppose this sort of begs the question uh, in a way is if the characters at the end of Avengers Arena come back to life, does that make it does that change the nature of how you feel about it then?
1: I really don't know. I've been thinking about it because here's the thing: I don't really believe Nico's going to stay dead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I ever since the first issue of Avengers Arena, I've been working under the assumption that none of it is real. Mm-hmm. Like it's all going to be undone in the last issue of the series. Right. One way or another, either it's not actually happening in the first place, or there's going to be some sort of you know get-out clause where everything is going to be undone. Right. But there's just something about it that seems more—I don't know—rejoicing in death. I don't. I. I can't. I can't explain it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: it. I believe that Nico. I believe that death is being used. As a storytelling tool here in a way that I don't believe it's being used in the Catwoman thing. I think the Catwoman thing is so obviously a fake out Mm -hmm. that it becomes a, how's she going to get out of this? Right. As opposed to the Nico thing where I think they actually want you to believe she's dead. Does that make sense? Yeah,
0: I sort of, I sort of get your, I, I mean, it's really, like it's a,
1: I, I, know it's a totally weird, like, double standard. Yeah, it kind I of is in a way. I, let's face I'm, it. I'm really, I'm really aware that it's that there's, that it's essentially the same thing. But for some reason, one really upset me in a way that the other one. I was like, I can't believe anyone's believing this.
0: Right. So I think that's really interesting. I mean, it seems to me that, like, if I'm parsing part of your argument, is sort of because Catwoman has a regular ongoing book um, you almost need to have that kind of super like oh see the bullet hits the head kind of like you know what I mean like it has to be that sort of like the magic trick has to be more detailed in order to make you even think that you're going to fall for it for a minute whereas because Avengers Arena is dealing with a bunch of characters who don't have their own books or don't have their own plans and aren't traditionally considered A list characters, it seems very likely that it it doesn't need to go to that levels to convince and therefore it seems to be wallowing in it.
1: Well, it for me also, there's the Catwoman is tied up and shot in the head. Mm-hmm. Nico has her hands cut off, has her legs broken. I I don't know, if there's there's it seems more like you say that uh, they go further with Gawan. I don't think they do. I think they go further with Nico.
0: well, I don't know. All I know is having seen both of the page i've I only saw the final page of Avengers Arena out of context and that final Justice League page out of context. Or pages, And seeing someone get shot in the head and, and showing, like, blood spatter out the other side and then lying there on the table with their eyes staring lifelessly up at the ceiling. I mean, it does say something that I'm like, yeah, I suppose actually cutting off someone's hand and breaking their legs does uh, seem more gratuitous, I guess, or something. But I think that that's kind of a, a super... I mean, again, there's this weird, like... Just yesterday, um, I was hanging out with my three-year-old niece, and she's like, let's play Catwoman. And I'm like, oh boy, DC, fuck you, you know? Because I'm like... Oh, no, no, to- totally, totally. You know. I,
1: I, I very much agree. The, the funny thing about the Justice League issue for me, mm-hmm. the thing I took away more than the death, was thank God they finally zipped up her her suit.
0: Right, right. That's
1: It's the weirdest thing, but that honestly was the thing I took away more because oh. I was like, she's, she's obviously back next this issue, but thank god someone fucking remembered that's a zipper.
0: Is that the telegram? Is that how we know that it's not Catwoman? Is that she actually is, is zipped up and not showing off the, the, the cleavage? Uh, the,
1: the the tell is that she she th- actually throws her zipper. She uses her zipper as a weapon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in the next scene, you see Catwoman and she has her zipper back again.
0: Oh, well there we go. There we go. Like she
1: uses the ring of her zipper, and then it's then all of a sudden it's back, as opposed to lodged in whoever's head it's supposed to be lodged in.
0: Well, there we go, ladies and gentlemen. No, I'm. That, I, here's I, the I, thing
1: that might that might not be a tell. That could be Brad Booth being the most inconsistent oh, artist ever. Oh my I God! Oh, oh, I thought it
0: you were joking. Face is,
1: it's. Oh no, that's really. <laughs>
0: <not>. <laughs> that's so funny. I'm like, oh, Graham's being like is actually. I thought oh, no, you were no, doing I, one no, of no, your straight legs. Oh my that God, is, that's that the actual tell.
1: Yeah. And it might not even be a tell. I might be just be thinking it's a tell because there's an inconsistency that otherwise makes no sense.
0: No, but, but so what you're saying is, is therefore the character in one scene isn't the same as the character in the next scene? Right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, okay.
0: Yeah. All right. All right. That, like, that... she take,
1: she literally takes the ring of her zi- zipper off and uses it as a weapon, and then the next scene, she has it back again.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, that's... Um...
1: But again... It's DC, it literally could be shitty continuity. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's one of those things where you're like, if every time something was wrong was a tale, there are already seven years worth of continuity gaps they have to explain. You know, Just be glad DC doesn't have a no prize.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> can I can I tell you very quickly about the only decent uh, John Constance teen story that I came up with and why I'll never be able to use it?
1: No, no, you're back now. You were, last I heard was Can I Tell.
0: Okay, well, let's try this again. Can I tell you about the, the the only John Constantine story that I ever came up with that I'll never be able to use because it's so event-specific? Oh, yeah, please do. Okay, so basically, and I thought this would actually be kind of a brilliant way to fake everyone out. Like, it's that classic, like, taking fans' expectations and using it against them, is I think that it would have been brilliant if around the time that the 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 Constantine movie was coming out with Keanu Reeves. The story in Hellblazer would be John Constantine realizes that he's dying and has to groom his personal replacement and it ends up being somebody who looks like Keanu Reeves. And so the whole setup of the story is is that this Keanu Reeves character is going to take over and become John Constantine. And of course what you do is you do all these sort of articles interviews in the press about how you know you kind of have to do it to make sure that the media properties line up and blah 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 and of course the the joke would be then at the end of the storyline Constantine ends up sacrificing the Keanu Reeves lookalike as a you know an essentially a double to get himself out of the bind that he's gotten himself into um and of course, there's other things so that the Keanu Reeves character isn't, it's not just a like, oh, John Constantine sacrificing an incident. But I was kind of like, yeah, Constantine seems like one of the few characters where you could get away with playing with fanboy expectation and it's actually sort of fair game for a story since he's kind of um, uh, a, a chaos character anyway, sort of. You know, mm-hmm. but but of course, don't, don't
1: don't don't say that to DC now. They'll hire you to write Constantine. Yeah, they
0: probably will. They'll be like, "Can you do this story?" I'm like, "But wait, it doesn't make he's any a, sense." He's a
1: chaos avatar? That's great. <laughs> can can you have him being a chaos avatar for like three issues, which will become two issues, which will then become an issue, and then will become a multi-part crossover? Is
0: it time for We're us? We're gonna have ta- for
1: the Phantom Stranger and Pandora. Is it, is it?
0: I love the way you said that. By the way, your diction was impeccable. Is that is is that a cue that we should talk about Paul Jenkins' uh, open letter and follow-up interview on bleeding? Uh,
1: yeah, but let, call me back first because you are actually being cut out.
0: Oh well, son of a cock. Okay, uh, are we going to bo- <laughs> are we going to fully reboot then? Do you think? Bye. Yeah, it seems to be working, right? Yeah, it seems fantastic. I'm hoping that when we hear the playback, it won't just all be smirgle burgle cats, you know. So. <laughs> talk to you in a second smurgle burgle (laughs) cats smurgle burgle cats (laughs) Graham.
1: Sister. we're back, you're there, I'm there, your spectacular beard is there. Ladies and gentlemen, what is different about podcasting now is we can see each other for yes. the start, and then we we'll both minimize our windows because it freaks each other out.
0: <laughs> Honestly, I'm more worried about tech, Graham. Seeing your face it's could never not... freak me out. Although, of course, oh, what's freaking me out is the idea that you can see my face. That's the part that That's what I'm out. saying.
1: It's not each other.
0: Well, that's see, adorable. you've done it.
1: You've done it already. There you go. We'll... Anyway... You yes. want to talk about Paul Jenkins and his spectacular interview.
0: Wow, that was great, wasn't it? It was really fascinating to me. I do have to say, though, let me tell you, um, you know, I, I think our trick is to actually invoke David Mary's name three different times during our podcast, so he just spontaneously appears on our FaceTime call. But uh, I did love the David Mary's comment on Twitter that Paul Jenkins pitch for Superman was terrible.
1: You know? oh, it really it really, really, really was. Yeah. I mean and also his pitch for The Flash was hilarious as well.
0: Yes. Yeah. I really kinda had those things of like, Jesus, you know, I I kinda I mean the thing that's interesting to me is honestly in so many ways the stuff that he's pitching is not that worse than stuff that's necessarily going on, I guess. But it really did have this kind of weird um to me, this very strange feeling of Paul Jenkins, like he had so much, so many other good points about why he should, uh, basically about how, why he was frustrated with DC and to an extent Marvel um, that, that... I, and and then he's like and here's
1: my stories, and you almost think holy shit, I can see why they said no.
0: Yeah, exactly I can see why they said, exactly, like that technically is what's known in comics as a good call You know, so, but there is also that thing of, um, I don't know, you know, Jenkins has a really weird, uh, to me, like, he's somebody whose work almost never works for me. So, that being said, I was still incredibly, I don't know what the right word is. Like, I guess I was just generally appalled. Like, the stuff that he was talking about in terms of his treatment. um, was, Was breathtaking it was breathtaking exactly i mean
1: it really it, i i i was like i said I, think I said in Newsroom, it was a brutal interview and i meant that in the sense of holy shit if that's actually what's happening i i i am i am stunned i mean i'm genuinely stunned yeah yeah because right. it, it goes beyond the the oh i you know i get rewritten or they tell me what's right that we've heard in the past which sounds you know pleasant in comparison with what he was saying
0: yes yeah absolutely absolutely um so i'm trying to think because i i've to me it was really a the, a two two-part state to me like i ended up reading rich's follow-up interview on bleeding cool pretty much at exactly the same time i ended up reading the open letter um Ram, I I don't have my visuals on, but was a helicopter just passing overhead or something? What was that amazing ninja-like sound?
1: <laughs> that would have been me coughing.
0: Really? Because it sounded yeah. like. Oh,
1: that I have no idea what that is. That's <laughs> no, that's not on my end.
0: I thought you were running a sewing machine or something. So okay, well.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I'm keeping my sweatshop going as I
2: talk to the. Podcast. <laughs>
0: Well, I have to say, we really would be the modern embodiment of the comic book industry if we were actually <laughs> exactly, yes. running our uh, yeah. own sweatshops while critiquing practices.
1: Yeah, we're keeping the PR going, but I'm getting these kids just, I mean, they're young, Jeff. They can keep up for like, you know, 24 hours on a go, and then they're just churning out the product. It's, it's great.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is great. I agree. Oh, my God. I,
1: I, I'm really excited about everything we're coming up with this summer. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Oh man, the Little McMillions line of uh, clothes would just be the best. I know you would hate that because of the name, but I'm like, oh yeah Little McMillions, that's the best. Um, Oh, are we going to have a Graham says it because you said it section? Uh, Yeah, because Super God
1: Master Force wants me to say it's a Carter, which was hilarious. I love that. Um, and Bill Beachler wanted me to say, oh, no, the terrible Beagle boys are breaking into my money bin.
0: I love that one, too. I love that one, too. I'm just like, oh, man. Uh,
1: you know what I love about that one, though? I totally didn't put, put two and two together until I was saying it. I made it as far as the terrible Beagle. And I was like, oh, fucking
2: Scrooge McDonald's. <laughs> Oh, that is the best.
0: That is the best. (laughs) Oh, my God.
1: Anyway, there you go. Anyway, Jeff, we are talking about Paul Jenkins and his open letter. His open letter seemed, uh, I don't know, like reasonable, I guess. Yes. You know, it it seemed almost like he didn't, not that he didn't want to burn bridges, but that he was like, I'm just going to try and get this quiet. And then he talked to Rich and was like, well, let me tell you.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't know. I mean, that that's the thing. This is like, I guess, for me, the... Hmm, I, interestingly enough, A, I definitely found myself kind of going like, well, maybe it's time for me, maybe I will end up boycotting DC Comics sort of the same way that I have boycotted Marvel. <laughs> which is to say badly. Uh, but... <laughs> yeah, just, so what you're basically saying is you want people to give you digital quotes for DC calls Yeah, which would be way more difficult, you know, because there's so few combo packs that I think that they have in their... It's their true,
1: yeah, you someone would have to packs. actually buy the combo pack.
0: Yeah. But, uh, yeah, actually, Paul Paul Cornell's, his statement following right on the heels of v- Villains United or whatever, is that what it's being called? No, it's Villains Month?
1: Yeah, Villains Month and Forever Evil, Forever Evil, Jeff.
0: Boy, I have to say that that really does look a, like a bad event. I really think that I, in the way that tell it you, stops.
1: Like, I, I'm a, I'm, as you know, I'm a DC guy, and my first thought of Villains Month honestly was, so I can skip all of these books then. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Thanks.
0: Yeah. What? What?
1: What did Paul Cornell say though?
0: Oh, just uh, sorry. I say Paul Cornell. I meant Paul Jenkins. Wow, what an idiot okay. I am! Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. Paul Jenkins. His his letter falling at the same time as villains is. I was like, it really kind of had this weird like, okay, this really does confirm DC is exactly in as bad a place as everyone suspects. You know, um, and it really does make me kind of there. Is, I do have that level of like, a maybe I should stop. Buying DC Comics for that reason, for the Paul Jenkins reason, and B, if I do, it looks like it's going to be easy to do that because.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, really, what are you buying? Yeah, You're buying
0: what Batman. Are... I'm buying Batman. Right? I'm buying Batman, and I think I'm buying Batman and Robin. And I've tried a couple. I've tried both Green Team and the Movement, and I will not be buying uh, additional issues of that. And I'm buying digital issues of Commandy on Comicsology. But oh, and I should say that I read Suicide Squad Twenty finally, and it seemed a little messy to to put it mildly. But I really so liked the ambition that they were doing. Actually, I thought that between Alice Cott's ambition and Patrick Zerchner's skills, I was like, oh, this is a book that I would I would want to pick up again. You know, like yeah,
1: it's it, it, it's it's a nice sort of like. Oh, so you're I I kind of see where you're going mm-hmm. and I I'm interested to see if you get there.
0: Yeah, kind of like I I think this is going to grow into something this could it has the potential to grow into something interesting and I kind of see were you the one who compared it to Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol? Yeah. I really saw that comparison although I feel that Morrison's first issue of Doom Patrol was uh to me I think I more accomplished. What I liked was that uh, uh, Kotz really has um, a lot of ambition, and his influences are—you can really see, sort of, see them on his sleeve—in a way that is, I think, exciting. I suppose rather than just sort yeah, of... it,
1: it, fe- it felt like it had its own its own ambition and its own intent. Yes, se- separate from the DC Lockstep, which which made it a particularly interesting book.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so even though I only bought the, I've only bought the one issue of that. It's like I would be planning on buying more issues of that. But now, so that's kind of what's at stake for me if I if I stop buying DC. How about yourself? Do I, you, I, you, I got buying?
1: I got the impression. What am I buying from DC? Yeah, oh, sorry, God, maybe I'm that's buying, the wrong I'm buying, question. I'm buying so much more from DC than you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm buying both the Justice League books mm-hmm. and the Vibe book. Oh yeah, and the Vibe book, right? Um. What else am I? What else am I buying? I'm buying Suicide Squad, uh, for the next few issues at least. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm buying Legion until it gets cancelled. But at this point, that's more out of a weird car crash quality. Right. Um.
0: Are you buying
2: Swamp Thing? I, or
1: no, I'm not. But I keep getting sent to Swamp Thing, so I'm actually really up to date in Swamp Thing. Right. Uh, I'm buying Earth Two, and I was thinking about jumping onto Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If only because I actually really liked Robert Venditti's first issue. Oh, interesting. Uh, it it felt more what I would want from a Green Lantern comic than the last few years of Jeff Johns has. Mm hmm.
0: hmm.
1: And so, uh, but at the same time, it's Billy Tan art. It swings and roundabouts. Oof, that's tough. Yeah, it really is. It's like the writing's great. And don't get me wrong, this is the best Billy Tan art I've seen. Mm hmm. But, um, but that, yeah, so that's what, five, six books? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. That's a bunch.
0: Yeah, that is a bunch.
1: Um, but you know, we'll see because I don't think, I, for example, Earth Two, mm-hmm. Jim Robinson's leaving.
0: Right. Uh, legions get your, your as you mentioned. Legions getting, getting cancelled. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So that leaves the Justice League books and Suicide Suicide Squad.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, so, and and maybe iffy Green Lantern, possibly. Yeah.
1: But I mean, here's the thing as well. Justice League, uh, Jeff Johns is off. Oh, is he? He's like leaving Justice League of America. He's staying on Justice League.
0: Ah, oh, I see. Who's coming in on Justice League of America? Is that Matt Kint. Mm. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it's
1: there's put this way, there's nothing I'm madly in love with there right now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's the point where when I went to the store this weekend, that was the first time I'd been there. Uh, in four or five weeks. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really feel any burning need to pick books up, with the exception of it had been that long, and I felt guilty for them being in my box. Right. You know, I didn't feel like I was missing anything.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Which I think is a sign that you're
0: like, eh, I could take it or leave it. Right, exactly. Let me ask you, because the Paul Jenkins thing, I'm trying to open up a browser window so that I, I could talk about it a little bit better. Um... Than I am the, now, the, but the,
1: the the Jenkins thing for me made me feel that DC treats its talent worse than Marvel.
0: Uh, yes, which is something that various creators who took my basically were sort of poking at my at my Marvel boycott were kind of like, you know, and I said like I don't like the way that they're treating their people, and and this creator's point was well. DC's treating its treating its creators worse, and I'm at you know for me I kind of disregarded it because my thing isn't as much the creators the creators the, the people in the offices yeah yeah the the staff themselves are it seems like are actually being treated miserably but you know the creators in theory have the the ability in a in a way to to move to other places like Jenkins did do with his with Boom but um, yeah
1: but I I again I, I always. I have my traditional freelancer angst when you say things like that. Mm-hmm. Because sure you do, but so does anyone else who has a job. Do you know what I mean? Just because you're a freelancer doesn't mean that there is automatically another opportunity right around the corner. If you're on a book, right, and you know, even if you're on a DC book, God knows if you're going to be there next month. But say you're on a book and it's a regular gig, mm-hmm. that is something that's hard to turn up
2: sure no especially it, it especially if you're
1: um, if you're a mid-level dc creator mm-hmm. marvel's not going to take you right well
0: they they're not i don't know I, I i'm not sure that i'm following you why why wouldn't they because
1: marvel goes for higher level dc creators if anyone or other creators or image creators if you're uh Booth. I can't see you ending up in a Marvel book. Hmm.
0: Interesting. Well, I, I I'm not sure that I agree with that assertion. Uh but to keep it more simple, I guess for me, although freelancing is, is sort of it's sort of baked into the nature of the job that you have the freedom to come and go, that it's more of an at will scenario and it's it's right there up front. And usually, at least the way that it's set up, is there are greater forms of restitution set up for a freelancer that staff members don't have, you know? Um, so for me, I don't get me wrong, as somebody who's married to a freelancer and as somebody who's done a lot of freelancing, well, not a lot, I should say, as someone who's done some freelancing gigs, I definitely... on the one hand, I take your point. On the other hand, there's always an idea for freelancers that kind of, um, you know, a situation hasn't, you know, by its nature has the end date sort of baked right into the description of the job, you know. Whereas I feel like somebody who takes a job at uh, a a comic book company or any company, there are certain things that you expect that you are ex- that you expect based on I don't no labor law or the way that the job is presented, that if you get in there and it's it's not being fulfilled, um, you're kind of I, my my thing is and I could totally be wrong is is that a D.C. staffer uh, is going to have more difficulty finding another job than than a D.C. freelancer and maybe that's that's completely crazy talk, you know maybe it's just the opposite. But, yeah, I mean, who knows? <laughs> right, right. But at least for where I'm at, I'm sort of like, eh, d- don't get me wrong. I'm not saying like, so they should treat people like shit, you know? It. But I'm just saying that for myself, that was like the my bone of contention really did have to feel like, I feel like staffers have less power than freelancers, and I could be entirely mis- mistaken in that. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, Paul Jenkins, his ability of, of talking... About um, that, 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 uh, that basically, the creators are being. Do you feel that cre- he he seems to talk very specifically about how he's being treated at DC on Dark Knight, and then sort of extrapolates that out to the rest of the company. Did you get that feeling as well, or, or yeah, and also.
1: No, no, I, I got that feeling, but also I got that he then separated that from his experience in DC Universe Presents.
0: Yes, with the Dead Man series. Which
1: was really interesting as well, because he kind of went out of his way to be like, that was great.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So it's this weird thing where he's like, DC's completely in the toilet, because I had this shitty experience with this one editor on this one book. Yeah. But I had a good experience in the other book, but it's, it's about the shitty one. Which is, you, you know... He's possibly, there's extra information that he's not telling us there. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, for all we know, he was on conference calls with other people, and he knows it's happening more than once.
0: Yeah, and I think that's it. I think that's the part that he leaves out. Interestingly enough, when I read the follow-up interview with him, on the one hand, it's like, I definitely feel that he is upset and frustrated at how things are happening uh, at DC, but his some of the examples just the fact that is like dark knight was great and dead men wor- worked you know dead men dead men worked great and dark knight was terrible made me go well then why are you like that seems to almost argue yeah, against why
1: still yeah, why does it why is everything terrible if you have a, if you had a one to one experience
0: yeah yeah exactly where one was actually great but it was you know i i do find unfortunately i feel like that is i don't know perhaps part and parcel of The way in which freelancers hands get tied is you can't really you know it's hard to blank you know tar everyone with a brush even if you necessarily feel that way because you do have to make a point to go like oh but not dead man dead man was great I had a great collaborative relationship with my editor on dead man you know you take the time to spell that out so that the dead man editor isn't offended and gives you work later on and yet it ends up like like the diplomacy ends up weakening your argument you know what I mean so Yeah, I
1: just I just read it as he was trying to not piss off the guy he'd had a good experience with, but he's also not talking about other bad experiences he's had.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm hmm.
0: Yeah. So
1: <sighs> What was what was interesting to me was his original open letter I felt was much more balanced towards criticisms of Marvel. Mm-hmm. And then when he actually goes into specifics, it's all DC. Yes. Which I thought was really weird.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And
1: I don't know if he was overcompensating because he had weighted his criticisms toward Marvel initially. Mm-hmm. Or if he just hadn't. His problems with DC are so big and so specific that he just didn't want to get into it in the open letter. Right. But uh- I did. I remember feeling when it, the original open letter went out that he was talking in such generalities. And he seemed to be talking, waiting his conversation, his argument towards Marvel. Well, and then you get this, this interview, and this interview is really clearly about DC. Yeah,
0: I, I think, I think the thing that's interesting to me is, is that it, it, looking at it briefly, I think that his point, which is actually a very strong one, in the letter, is the idea that both companies are currently servicing the characters rather than servicing the characters the creators that the creators are there to you know that it's in character maintenance mode is how he describes both companies but then when the follow-up interview is done with rich there's a lot more perhaps because um uh jenkins is being put right in the corner of kind of saying like well how you know do you, do you think that this will close the door for best for both publishers it's like or like why you know sort of sort of like why why do we why should we sort of believe you kind of and he, I think it's isn't it in his, his interview with Rich where he's like well I could show you the incredible piece yeah, of I, I, I could yeah mm-hmm. I can
1: show you the script I can show you the script and you can compare it to the comic yeah
0: yeah so I mean I, I do think that that you know That does end up mitigating, like his, I think his point really was kind of like, hey, neither, you know, you just don't have the realm to truly be uh, a truly creative creator at both companies, because they are managing their brand. And then when it comes to the interview with Rich, there's a lot of like, oh, and DC is really treating people. Horribly, They're bullying people, which I do believe. I actually, after reading it, I really kind of had this thing of like, okay, here's actual individual confirmation, and it's not like I needed a lot, but I did need more than like an email of a person of a person who wasn't working there saying like, oh, DC's actually bullying the writers and saying that they'll never work in the industry again if, you know, if they don't do these changes. To having Paul Jenkins go, yeah, editors are bullying you know what I mean, like it's kind of, and I'm willing to leave the company over it. That really did put me in a position of like, okay, well, maybe I should not be buying d c books for a while. See, did you just run the sewing machine again? What did you just do there? No, I put it,
1: <laughs> I put it on mute and coughed and then put it off mute.
0: Oh, I guess when you mute, it kind of goes Can you mute it again real quick for a second? Sure. Nope. Did Please. it happen there? No, that's not it. Okay, Jeff
1: is just losing his mind. Um, that's all right. You're having a, a caffeine crash. Um, <laughs> so are you? Go- are you going to boycott Marvel, uh, DC as well?
0: Uh, I don't know. I tell you what. Whatnots. Uh, leave your comments on this episode and let me know. Should I? Yes. No. Is it completely foolish? Does it? Does my as we all know, the term boycott as used by Jeff may not be the right term. I can't remember it. Some someone suggested a far better term for it: the abstention. Should I should I abstain? Let me know. Yes, no, why? And I will. I'm I'm not saying that I will follow the most votes. That would be great. <laughs> I I am glad
1: that you are saying that because I was going to say please if you decide to boycott or abstain from buying a company's products do it for your own reasons not because people tell you to.
0: Well, no, but I thought it would be sort of fun to do a death in the family style like call one eight hundred and but no, but no, do do write call in because I'm kind of like, Jeff boycott!
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Because I don't I don't actually have a, um I don't have a. a a few like a month ago or so, when we were talking about it, maybe it was two months ago. I was like, I really don't want to let go of Batman, but you know, I kind of really had that weird moment after the most recent two part, uh, where we like story. I'm okay
1: looking getting good about yeah,
0: I kind of am. I kind of had this moment like Batman and like Batman and Robin and 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 Capullo and Snyder's Batman are both kind of at relatively low periods, and I don't think that I think it's only temporary. But there is a time where the tide's low enough that it's like, hey, I can hop onto the dock and it's not going to be, you know, I just walk away. Um, I, I don't feel as particularly emotionally married to my desire to have a, a DC con- Also, I think part of it is <laughs> the last couple of weeks, admittedly we've had no podcasts and truncated co- podcasts, but I'm like, I'm having you know, I'm having lots of comics to talk about. I mean let's keep in mind everybody when I say boycott dc nobody's keeping me from buying the rest of those issues of on digital you know that's going to happen <laughs> nobody and nothing nothing seriously that's not going to happen but but everything else is pretty much on the table um you know and and part of me feels like i'm like well then i'm going to start qualifying like i'm like oh god but what about the next curvy omnibus but you know i really do have that kind of moment of like i don't I, I, even though DC's reprint stuff is doing a bunch of stuff that I'm, that I, kind of am crazy, that I'm looking forward to, that I'm like excited about, that would be hard to let go. But in terms of current DC product, um, see, but then I have that feeling of like, well, but then the boycott means nothing if I don't really care about it. So I really should let go of everything, <laughs> apart from Kirby's Commandy, which nobody's taking away from me. So I don't know. <laughs>
1: I do like that you have. In the space of two minutes, gone. I'm doing a boycott, but it's gonna mean something to me. But fuck it, if it means I can't buy this thing I want to buy.
0: Well, come on, Graham. Like Jesus, <laughs> I'm trying to put myself up here on the like. Yeah, you know, I've I've managed to poorly maintain at least one boycott in the time that where you're, Mister. Like, hey, I'm getting everything. I'm like, but isn't it wrong? You're like, sure. Like, don't you feel <laughs> weird about it sometimes? I'm not stopping me. <laughs> So yeah, don't rain on my parade, Mister. I'm try—I'm trying to find a ground that you're not even really searching for. You're like, yeah, you—good luck with that. You know, like, until you've walked a mile in my ethically compromised shoes, Mister. <laughs> it's totally
2: true. It's totally true. I have the morals of a snake. <laughs> mister, you heard
1: it here first. <laughs>
0: Oh, man. Well, um, And on that bombshell. Yeah, exactly. I guess that's probably the sign that we should jump. Um I hate to jinx this, but if this is the way that our, our recording is going to go every time, I think we might have a winner on our hands. You've sounded, like, completely strong, with, with all but certain tiny exceptions. Um, and you've sounded
1: as strong as an ox. And, may I just say... You've sounded more handsome than on Skype as well.
0: <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you, Graham. You always sound handsome. Uh, I definitely... Let's keep in mind, everyone, that uh, I definitely sounded more over-caffeinated for good reasons. Next time when we talk, <laughs> perhaps you'll find me a le- little le- less manic. Le- less argumentative, yes. Oh, my God. Well, I don't mind being argumentative. My problem is is that I've been argumentative and dim, like, you've brought up lots of good I points. Don't, I don't think you've been dim. Oh, I think so. I think a lot of my points are like, but Graham, no, because, uh, because no. So that that doesn't that doesn't help. But just uh, be glad
1: we didn't have the Zenith conversation because that really would have been both of us going at it. Oh shit! Yeah.
0: Hopefully next week we'll be more prepared to do that. We'll have some comics to talk about. Graham, I feel bad though. Before we go, can you at least run down some of the comics that you've read that you like that you want to talk about, or maybe super uh, things that you think are worth banging? I'm to the, think whatever it Let's
1: see the the green the. Uh... Robert Venditti, Green Lantern. I would recommend. Right. I think that was surprisingly good. I caught up on the Dark Horse's Buffy comics, which are all heading towards their finale. Mm-hmm. Uh, Angel and Faith r- remains a surprisingly good comic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, its resolution of the long-running—I mean, it's on issue what? It's on issue 22, so almost two-year plot—was mm-hmm. um, surprisingly satisfying. I—I mm-hmm. I, I was really—it did not go where I expected, and I really enjoyed it. Um... What else have I read comic-wise recently? I've not read that. I've been, for some reason, not reading a lot lately. I've mm-hmm. been watching The West Wing and, and writing instead of reading anything. Right. Um, I re- I've i read some terrible things, which I'm going to not talk about. Mm. Okay. Uh, I, I got I got sent a bunch of DC collections, which were not very good. Um, the best thing I've probably read comic-wise is I've been rereading Paul Tomasi's, uh, sorry, Pete Tomassi's, um Batman and Robin, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which, as a run, all the way up to Damien's death, is surprisingly coherent. Mm. I mm. didn't realize that in the Dream issue, the, the last issue before Damien's death, mm-hmm. um, there are specific callbacks to issue one.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: That I totally didn't realize in first read. And then when I reread it, when I reread it back, I was like, oh shit, this is surprisingly coherent.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Interesting. I'll have to give that a try, because I, at your recommendation, I picked up... Oh, there are the boys... Yeah, can you hear them? <laughs> um, I can, I can. Uh, not, qu- not quite with the clarity that I used to on Skype, which may be a good thing. It actually. also well,
1: like... I'm actually in the basement today, and so uh, you're oh. not hearing them out the windows the way you used to.
0: Oh, interesting. Because that was the other thing is, is the few times I saw you on FaceTime, I'm like, you weren't being washed out from the light from behind from the, me, the sun which, behind which, me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I was like, oh, that's he's. It's really working for him. Um. Uh. Yeah. I. I completely lost my train of thought. Oh, Batman and Robin. I picked up the first couple of issues, almost the complete full arc on digitally. And then I think I I realized like, Oh, I'm an idiot. They have this first trade as, um, I never actually finished it. I think I read the first four or five issues of Batman and Robin, because I was going to keep buying them digitally and then stopped essentially. And, Mm. uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's one of those things where it's, uh, where I think I'll keep, i'll keep going with it but it definitely and i think this is a good thing tomassi and gleason really picked up so much energy like in momentum so that by the time that you uh at least those death in the family issues or uh death of the family issues are stunning to me i mean they are just they're they're you know um it'll be interesting to see at what point sort of the worm turns, or if the the stuff that I like in The Death of the Family is almost anomalous compared to everything else. I mean, they're all very good, competent issues, the first five issues of that six-issue storyline, and who knows, maybe the six-issue wraps it up so fantastically that uh, that it, it, it um, you know, wins me over. But the Death of the Family issues are kind of like an impressive act of bullying their way into bullying their way into my heart that I that I that's pretty rare I guess
1: Uh, two things one it's actually an eight issue arc in the start because you've got three issues left Um, and I think the way to I think it's issue 12 Mm -hmm. Uh, no that can't be right maybe issue
0: 10 yeah it'll be
1: 10 11 12 Uh, go for issues 10 11 12 which is the three part story.
0: that might be more your speed Oh, interesting. Okay. I, I will keep that in mind, because, yeah, it makes a little sense, considering I got the part five, and I'm like, man, this thing's wrapping up. It's kind of, hmm. So, okay. Good to know.
1: And with that, yeah, basically, that's what I've been reading. So, okay. with that, and because I really should probably go and stop the dogs from howling a lot, <laughs> um, I'm going to do my traditional singing, Jeff. Would you like to join me? No, I feel like I... I... Uh, Greg's my my throat's still killing me. Okay. <laughs>
0: that was very good I was expecting Thanks. you to go low and go bar- <laughs> I I'll just cough a
1: lot now instead yeah sing